You're listening to SequelCast 2 and Friends, a proud part of the Greenlit Podcast Network. Any the crime? What? The only person who could ever mess with this gun would be the sucker with the bread to buy it. After the credits roll, there's always more to tell. Especially when the video sales are doing really well. From shock treatment to Jason X to Police Academy 6. This is Sequel Cast. And they are unsurpassed at following a franchise until the better end. This is Sequel Cast. And your hosts have asked that I inform you that the show will now begin. Do a podcast looking at movies in a franchise, one film at a time. I'm your host, Matt Bradley Shergi. This time we're talking about Dawn of the Dead, the original 1978 version directed by George A. Romero. With me is Thrasher. We don't like people who don't share. And uh, Alex. The dead, they get up and they feast on the living. That's right. And we are, I mean, this film I think is more famous than the original, you know, the zombies in the mall and what, what a brilliant symbolism that is, or, or even how uh, Capcom ripped it off for their, was it Dead Rising games? Yeah, and I think, like, of, of, all the, of all the Romero movies, this seems to be the one that people around my age talk about the most and reference the most, even if they've seen it the least. Although I think it's also um, it, it, one of the other reasons it sticks in people's head is because of the very high profile remake from 2004. Yeah. The yeah, Zack think... Snyder one, it was very successful as well. Yeah. I think that um, while night of the living dead might be the most like culturally um, significant, uh, this is definitely in my opinion, the best of the, of the series. And um it's terrific and it's an all-time favorite. Well, it's, it's so it's also like such such an anomaly because it's not like not like uh Not the Living Dead was was begging for a sequel. Um but also like this came out 10 years later. Yeah, and they they didn't really make any money off of Night of the Living Dead. Like this didn't catapult George Romero to like the forefront of uh, horror cinema, you know. Right. It it is one of those things that they with kind of like with the uh, Martin Scorsese and the gangster movies you think oh oh Romero's the zombie guy and well yeah he's done a lot of these zombie movies um he's he did you know a lot of other things and between Night of the Living Dead and Dawn of the Dead he did things like the crazies and uh Martin the, Martin oh, yeah. I mean so did all kinds of different sort of things I mean they usually have a supernatural bent of some sort, but I wouldn't say it's all straight out horror all the way through, but well, there, there is some, so many amazing things going on in, in this movie. Cause okay, you got, you got Romero back, uh, co-writing and also directing. Uh, but then you've also got, uh, you've also got, it's, pr- it's produced by Claudio Argento. It's got music by Goblin and Dario Argento. There, there's this great like, Italian influence coming into this movie. Yeah, and that was, a, I guess, part of it was that um, George Romero never really intended to return to the living dead, but he got literally just got a phone call from Dario Argento in Italy, and he said, like, Do you, let's make another, you want to make another a living dead flick? And he was just kind of like, sure, and he, I guess, went out to Italy and, like, knocked out a script in a few weeks, and that was kind of like the birth of the movie. 
And um, when they got the, when he found out that the movie was happening, he basically, I think he just telegrammed, uh, sent a telegram to Tom Savini and said, we're making another movie. Think of cool ways to kill people. <laughs> yeah. And so not only do you have Savini working on special effects, he plays a part in this movie. That's right. He does. Yeah, like multiple parts. I guess like whenever like you see somebody get hit by a car or fly through the screen, this pro- it's usually him. <laughs> <laughs> it's, oh yeah, it's really quite something. And I think one thing I appreciate about this film is, you know, it's certainly bigger budget than the original, but you just have such a nice scope to it, because the first movie it was very condensed. You were either in that graveyard in the beginning or you're in the house, and that's pretty much it. But in this, you you get more of a sense of how it's affecting the United States. Although, yes, a lot of, you know, you get like the stuff in the TV station and, and uh, mostly in the mall later. But the mall, even though it's enclosed, there's lots of different places in the mall characters can go to. There's a lot of different character types having to to work together because they have kind of more space. You get more room for the characters to breathe. Uh, it doesn't feel as claustrophobic as Night of the Living Dead. Well, yeah, you do definitely get a sense that this is a national, if not global, problem. Uh, the other thing that I love about this movie, uh, that even a lot of other zombie movies do, every grim implication of of this whole zombie uprising is explored on some level. Uh, can you name? Can you name any other movie? that shows child zombies. Yeah, not until the remake in 2004. And um, even then it was, you know, it exists solely because they did it here in the original. Yeah, I, I can't think of any, yeah, anything else. I mean, the child zombies, it's inspired and idea. I, oh, sorry, Hugo. No, that was it. Um, well, uh, I never really feel like these movies are very scary. The way it opens up with a very, like, kind of abstract opening shot on that, like, red carpet, that red shag carpet in the TV station. Mm. And then you hear the, the goblin score creep up on you, and you hear those, like, skittering groans and voices. That always, that still freaks me out. It's almost like the soundtrack of The Shining in the opening, you know? You get, like, the, the like, kind of freaky voices, and... um it's uh, it's so well done. It's so it, it's a great way to establish the film, and then it just kind of kicks you into the pandemonium that's going on in the newsroom and everything like that. Well, I think that's the strength of a goblin score is that it's is that it's it's thoroughly artificial, but to the point where it becomes inhuman and it does start to add to the tension. Yeah, it's um, it's like disassociative, and then it just kind of gets like it really gets under your skin. But what I love too is that like. When you're watching something like, say, Suspiria, it almost feels like the movie's co-directed by a goblin, whereas mm. this, it never really overshadows the film. It really does work the way a score should work. Yeah, the int- and the intro is just the, the beginning of the movie is just kind of delightful because we get we get cross cutting between all the stuff that's going on at the live news broadcast as they're trying to make sense of this developing emergency to a SWAT team trying to respond to a situation in an apartment building, which gets increasingly chaotic, and oh. like you, and, and it's just and and just like so so many disturbing things are kind of brought up, such as that like the people in this apartment building, whenever someone dies, they lo- they throw the corpse into the basement. 
because they know it's going to come back as a zombie, but they can't bring themselves to dismember it. And so like this, this apartment building is just kind of a zombie bomb mm. waiting to go off and that it gets so chaotic. The SWAT team, the living and the dead are all really equal threats to each other. Yeah. And what I think is so amazing is that the, the scene in the project, it, it, it comes out with, it comes out with a boom and you know it opens up with like a like a rookie um, member of the of the National Guard getting shot right between the eyes, and it's like <laughs> announcing that like you know abandon all hope you enter here, you know what I mean? And there's this very um, you know you have the 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 guy the racist guy who goes Gonzo and everything. Anyway, he's really laying it on thick. And what's interesting is that some of the most brutal scenes of gore and violence are is human on human inflicted. Um, you know they're just blowing dudes away. And it's a very, very jolting um, opening, not opening, but uh, first act there for the movie. And, and then you, and then it gets really quiet and the transition is so intense. It, it almost is like an assault where one of the, like, you know, a room's been cleared out and one of the SWAT team guys decides to light up a cigarette and another SWAT team guy comes in and they decide to share a cigarette and they're talking about their combat experience. And then that one-legged priest comes yeah. out of the room and he just kind of explains, okay, I've done last rites on all the walking dead downstairs. So do what you have to do. Yeah. It's, it's really grim. Um, random bit of trivia. So when the first like round of dudes come out to the, come out shooting in the rooftop scene, do you see like a guy in kind of bad, you know, brown face makeup with a, with a long hair and stuff. Oh, that's right. That's John Amplis. That's uh, Martin. Hmm. Who the guy would play Martin down the road, and um, it, you can't unsee it once you watch it again. With that, it's a it's a really interesting bit of trivia, and um, the uh, when the dude kicks in the door and shoots the first big exploding headshot you get, there was actually a um, rubber mold made from um, uh, from uh, Galen Ross, a character because she was originally supposed to uh, die by self beheading herself with a helicopter blade and of course they changed the they changed the ending but so tom savini just put like an afro on the mm. lead actress's um head mold and just blew it up with a shotgun yeah is there is there any like reason why the actor who played martin like why why they had like to had to brown him up that seems so unnecessary i th i think they were going to use him again because there is a lot of scenes where they you know like stunt actors reappear and actors you know play multiple zombies and i think they were going to actually have him play another zombie later on because oh, it's such a weird decision so you mentioned characters from the first film something that strikes me about this movie especially when uh, especially when they're flying over like zombie infested countryside this movie could be happening in parallel with the original night of the living dead oh yeah definitely it picks it's basically like the the you know, guys you see at the end of the first night of, and the uh, character Roger, I think, says it. He's like, they're probably enjoying this, and it seems like great. You know, they're cracking beers and they're you know making coffee and they got donuts and stuff. Yeah, yeah actually, <laughs> at, at the at the risk of of getting ahead of ourselves, having been on disastrous hunting trips with good old boys from the deep south, that's kind of what it's like. There is this kind of like like jovial atmosphere and eventually you know it does just it does just dissolve into drinking beer and coffee and and eating jerky and just shooting the shit uh <laughs> like there there is a realism uh to that 
I'm reminded of a, a special I saw once on um, people that are a Bigfoot enthusiast, I guess, that go in the woods and try oh, to yeah. spot Bigfoot. And it sounds like sort of a similar thing where they, this one group, these t- people talk to, they're like, they bring like bacon and beer and chocolate. And the guy's like, we bring sweets and meats because that's what Bigfoot likes. And I like it too. <laughs> you know, it should be, we bring sweets and meats because that's what Bigfoot eats. <laughs> yeah. That's a bit, yeah, it's always better if you can rhyme a bit, but it's just, I, I love that you get this kind of transition of them uh, on, on the helicopter because you kind of, it's furthering that scope. You kind of see like, wow, how everything is affected. And yet they didn't have, you know, you don't see zombies all over the place. It's not this crazy overrun scene, but you still get that sense of, of desolation and that this is really spreading uh, to all the different corners here. Well, I think that that's like another thing is like a lot of modern zombie movies like have to have a gimmick for their zombie, like overwhelming numbers, running super yes, fast, yeah. combining together to turn into a giant fist. Uh, <laughs> but like th- this, this movie kind of doubles down on the fact that, hey, the zombies, you know what makes them a threat? The fact that they can take their time. Right. Like you have to sleep. They don't. <laughs> And, oh, and, and also so, it's a sheer numbers thing, right? There's so many of them, even if you have the latest guns or this or that, they're coming to get you eventually. It's like a Lovecraftian sort of doom to the whole thing. Like, they're going to get you eventually. But that, in one this thing movie, think... even when it's one zombie that is slow and dumb and uncoordinated, if it can get you backed into a corner, it is a real threat. Oh, yeah. And they also established that marksmanship is um, kind of a big deal in this When You see the hunters, you know, you'll see a couple of them, you know, tag a couple in the body and they keep going. And then, you know, when the helicopter lands, you'll see um, Roger and Flight Boy kind of have this contentious relationship where he'll keep trying to, you know, take out a zombie and he'll hit him in the chest and whatever. And then, you know, he'll kind of he comes over with his uh, machine gun and kind of like knocks his barrel down. He's like, ah, I, I got this. You know what I mean? Like that's in so many ways that he's saying like kind of emasculating him almost. Well, you know, something something else I do like like in this movie, and, I, and this relates to comments I've made on several episodes with movies that involve a lot of gunplay, but th- this is a movie where there are there are people who, clear, characters who clearly don't know how to use guns and are really sloppy and careless with them, but unlike so many other movies, the characters that do know how to handle firearms take, take him to task for that. Right, yeah, because he calls him out on it, you know, when he, when the, um, when Roger tries to get the, uh, not Roger, uh, when Flight Boy tries to shoot the zombie, all the dudes in the building, after he shoots the, after he shoots the kids, you know, he, he calls him out, and he points a gun at him, he's like, you don't, doesn't feel good, does it, to have a gun pointed at you, and he's like, cut yeah. the shit, basically. The, oh, and something else I like, and we, we did kind of skip over this, but all the stuff that's going on in the, in the TV station and it's a lot of it at the beginning, but it's a thread woven throughout the rest of the movie. I love just the room full of experts in front of cameras trying to make sense of this increasingly chaotic situation. Right. And to the point I... where it's almost postmodern, there's a scene where the scientist with the eye patch, who looks like he stepped right out of an EC comic, uh, is getting really technical. This is not cannibalism because cannibalism is intraspecies. <laughs> they don't attack each other. They only attack us. And like, and 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 that is the type of conversation that people were having unironically when the remake came out. Right. And um, what I do like too is that it's really like the tele 
the the television isn't really this like obvious exposition vehicle because these guys aren't really offering any solutions or, or valuable insight. They're just kind of like in the midst of this pandemonium. All they can really say is what we are, already know is that the dead are getting up and eating the living. <laughs> well, I also love it like when they get updates. I know we were saying to flee the densely populated areas, head out into the country. We are now finding out that is a bad idea. You should stay in your home, lock your doors, don't go right. into the country. It's worse in the country. <laughs> but yeah, uh, but yeah. So we know our characters are introduced, and so uh, and and so uh, Flyboy, the traffic copter pilot, uh, Peter Washington, uh, Roger DeMarco. Those are the two uh, SWAT guys, and uh, Francine, who is a production manager at the radio at the uh, television station. They just hop in the news copter and decide to flee the chaos of the city. Uh, and there's just some nice extended bits as they fly over the country and they're trying to scavenge fuel and dealing with zombies when they land. And that's actually when we get some of the child zombies. And it's just so it's so disturbing having them uh, ha- having them have to fight these these children that have been take that have that have come back from the dead. And it's um it's also like a testament to Romero as a director because he hears the um, scurrying around and he you know pop, pops a couple shots off into the door that would have hit you know an adult figure and it doesn't and then so it's more of a it's more startling when they come out and then it's also startling that they're children and it's even more startling that he has to shoot them but Ramiro cuts away from it you hear the shots and you see his expression and you're just kind of like damn dude like this is this is some desperate shit going on (laughs) one great effect during that that same sequence is that uh is that uh, I believe it's uh, I believe it's Francine's gun is jammed or something, but she's like trying to get back into the helicopter, and this zombie like gas station attendant is coming after her, and it climbs over some rubble, but the rubble brings its head parallel to the blades of the helicopter, and just the top of his head gets sheared off in this wonderful practical effect. It's a it's a great effect, and. Um... I guess um, Tom Savini just hid behind the boxes and just had this giant pump hooked up to the back of the guy, like a, running up his pant leg to, you know, where his head part was. And then another dude off screen, you know, with fishing wire, just ripping the, the, the top of the head makeup off. And uh, when the guy, when the zombie falls, you can actually see it under his pant leg. You see like a little red tube <laughs> oh, yeah. protruding from his pant leg. But it's such a good effect. I love that scene. Oh, there's also one little thing that that other movies would make would make such a big deal uh, deal over, where like as other people are fleeing the news, the the broadcast station. This is like, well, we're going to get on a boat. We're going to go to the island. What island? Any island. Any island. They Do you have any swim, cigarettes? They? I love that he's like you know begging everyone for cigarettes, and then when they get in, they all say no, and they get in, they all light up. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, and, and then it, we, we kind of get to, uh, like, I guess all this stuff is really kind of prologue, because, as, as, you know, as they realize it's getting harder and harder to find gas, they just, they they realize, huh, you know, there's a mall down there. If we block the entrances, we've got a fortress. And so, oh, yeah. yeah, so they land on the roof of the mall, they uh, and they take over the mall and make it their home. It's full of supplies. Uh, and and something the movie like doesn't, like still makes interesting is we sort of see day to day how they live and how they make this mall function. And I like that we see like, that's the thing that that's the thing that I love is that they adjust to this zombie overridden world and we get to see what their new status quo is. 
Right, and it's almost like, and you see the way they put it together, and it's like it's very um, methodical. Like they first get in, they, you know, they just kind of spot some rations in this weird backroom area, and then you know he's, you can see uh, when um, Roger and Stephen look to each other, they're like, there's a lot of stuff down there we could use, you know, and you can see this little like glimmer in their eye because they're both kind of daredevils in a way, and. Um, you know, when they, they go into the back rooms, they get the keys, they set up the thing, they turn on the fountains, the horrible music, and um, <laughs> they get things going. And it's, um, you can tell that it really gives you a, a, an idea for the framework. Like, you see the boiler room, you see the back room, all the devices, and, you know, the massive key ring. It's, um, it's fascinating how they lay it all out and give you such, like, a, you know, idea of the structure. And, you know, um, Stephen gets uh, the floor plan and, like, the ventilation map of the vents and all that stuff. It's uh, it's such a, a great way they put it together. We get a great sense of the geography. And I just, I love how clever they get, how, like, there there's, like, a utility entrance that they've been using to get around. And how once they figure out how to use the vents, they, like, they get some building supplies and they make a fake wall. It's like, yeah. just in case someone else comes looking mm. for looking around here, they won't know we exist. And it's, it is so smart. And that pays off later. I, I realize we've been talking over you, Matt, haven't we? Huh? Oh, oh, that's okay. Um, but yeah, I just was, was doing some, some research here while you were going on about what you love about the movie. And I find this really kind of appalling. Uh, Janet Maslin, in her original 1979 review of Dawn of the Dead, said she was only able to sit through the first 15 minutes of the film. Oh, my goodness. Really? Yeah, she said, this is how the review opens, as for an idea of what a major publication thought of it at the time. Some people hate musicals and some dislike westerns. And I have a pet peeve about flesh-eating zombies who never stop snacking. Accordingly, I was able to sit through only the first 15 minutes of Dawn of the Dead, George Romero's follow-up to Night of the Living Dead, which Mr. Romero directed in black and white in 1968. Since then, he has discovered color. Perhaps horror movie buffs will consider this an improvement. I mean, why? It's your job, if you're a movie critic, and especially if you're getting paid for it, it's your job to watch the whole movie and do your opinion of it. Yeah, you can't base an entire movie on the first 15 minutes especially you know a two-hour feature film it's that's just cheap to me you know well did she leave you to, due to reasons of taste or was she just too like unnerved by the gore to... um it talks about it being graphic but i think it just says she just doesn't like zombies i think it was taste but still if if you know that going in that this person refuses to watch zombie movies or, or something, you know, you have you would assign another critic to do that review, in theory. But I don't run the New York Times. I don't. Right. <laughs> On the day. <laughs> clearly, someone doesn't understand how horror press, horror movie press works. Is that if you have a critic saying like, "I couldn't even finish it," that's the best review you could get. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah, right. That's what you would put on the 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 box, right, on the, on the poster. Yeah, it's always you know banned in twenty eight countries, or you know the movie. Peter Travers walked out of, or whatever, you know. So something, other thing I love about this movie is that they do work to give the zombies some character. Like every zombie that gets close to the camera is sort of representative of a, of a particular American type uh, of of the seventies. There's the nun. Nuns were very big in pop culture at the time. There's the Hare Krishna. The Hare Krishna uh, one. Yep. Oh yeah, who, who shows up quite a bit. There, there's like you know, pa different parents, different kids. Uh, it's it's really nice that you see the same kind of zombies show up again and again, at least until they start actually dealing with the zombies uh, in the right. mall. And like, you know, 
loading the bodies into freezers and and uh, and kind of clearing the place out. I just oh god, and like and like you know, sort of role playing through things. Like oh, well, we're gonna have a, a dinner out. Uh, we'll make a fancy dinner, serve it in the fancy restaurant. I'll pretend to be a snooty waiter. Uh, we'll roller skate. We'll listen to music. We'll do all the fun things we always wanted to do with all these products we could never afford before. Like right. it, it is kind of neat the way that they find a sort of comfort in this, even if it starts to become hollow. The other thing I like, the characters do get, <clears throat> excuse me, do get a, a, a real arc. Like in the case of, of Trooper, because uh, Trooper and Washington are kind of competitive and like to one-up each other. When they're putting up the barricades, unfortunately, Trooper gets careless and he gets bit mm -hmm. and infected. And we slowly see his decline as he eventually dies of his infection and becomes a zombie and they have to put him down. But the other thing I like is that Flyboy, uh, who turns out was dating uh, was dating Francine and in fact, uh, they're, they're going to have a baby. Um, he starts the movie as kind of a petulant jerk who, oh, yeah, a... who doesn't know how to handle himself, he becomes a man. He becomes a decent person through this adversity. Right. And, like, he comes off as such a hard-on in the beginning. And then, yeah, he, you know, they, they definitely give him uh, time to develop and the other characters as well. But what I like, though, is that when she Francine announces earlier that she's pregnant, they don't really lean on it a whole lot. Like, you know, a lesser filmmaker, a lesser film would be, you know squeeze squeeze everything they could out of that but um you know it's just kind of like you know it's kind of lurking in the back you know you kind of are reminded of it later when she starts to show and um well, and that's well, the yeah, it's, it's there to sort of raise the stakes and add a little undercurrent to everything that's going on but the other thing that a lot of movies wouldn't like i think i think the only other two like monster movies that even address this are cronenberg's the fly and toxic avenger for citizen toxie mm -hmm is that when she announces she's pregnant and they realize, you know, that that, that could mean risks, uh, Peter Washington just flat out says, you know, I can abort it. I learned from right. my army surgeon how to do it. If you want to end it, I, I know how to end it. And we got the right. supplies here. And he, so that's the other thing, too, is that this is another um, early example of a female character that has much more agency. And she basically, and they declare that pretty early in the film. She says, like, don't treat me any different. You have to, I need a gun, first of all. You can't leave me alone without a weapon. <laughs> so we learned yeah. that's problematic. I and need a I'm gun, I know how to use it. They do, in fact. Right. <laughs> oh, and, and then she, she also learns also how to fly. To learn how to, exactly, to pilot the helicopter, exactly. And right. I mean, payoff. You know, there's also like a running theme where like, you know, they always like keep their radios and TVs on and transmissions become shorter and less frequent. Um, and then a very fascinating turn happens where they get a transmission. There's a bunch of bikers who presumably have been raiding places as they go across America. They've decided that the mall is their next target because they see a mall that's been fortified and it occurs to them, oh, shit, there must be something worth taking in there. Right, yeah, the the radio comes up, and he's like, how many of there are you? And he's like, oh, like three or four, you know? And it's, of course, Tom Savini. A family, some kids. <laughs> but in the other, like, it seems to be like an inter-biker alliance. There's, like, every type of biker. There are, there are one-percenters, there are neo-Nazi bikers, there are punk bikers. Right. And then just some are just, you know, renegade knuckleheads that probably were just hangers-on to begin with. Mm -hmm. Um I guess to backtrack a little, when they're barricading the, uh, they're barricading up the farm, I, uh, not the farm, the mall, um, 
I love the music that comes up. It's like this John Ford esque like cavalry charge, you know? It's do, like the military do. music they use. Yeah. And um it's it's so hard because you do see Roger getting careless and um once he gets nipped uh, shortly after, he's like, you know, and he's just like, yeah, shut up, I know. Like, <laughs> and it sucks because, you, you you know, you can see them settling into this, like, quasi-utopian existence they've created for themselves with, you know, going through and getting all the food they want and all this other stuff. And you can tell that it's just it's obviously sitting on the back of his mind that he's probably either going to turn and gonna have to get killed. And um, he really does sell the, like, it looks really painful, you know, when he's transitioning. It's, um, it is upsetting because we like this guy and it sucks that he's going to turn. Yeah. I mean, he, he's, he's, he's sort of an adrenaline junkie, but he is still like, overall, he's still a fundamentally decent person like you. Right. And, and that's, God, that's something that a lot of other zombie movies don't do is that usually there's the person who gets bit and lies about it and right. they will change at the least convenient time. But it, but in here, like, it really is a slow, lingering, painful death. Right. They're giving him shots of morphine, and, you know, it's it's really mournful. And um, and the makeup when he does turn is terrific. Like, you really just get this feeling like the, you know, that he's dead, that, like, his chinks, cheeks are, are sunk in, you know, that the, the, the arteries harden and, like, you know, your skin retracts and stuff. Like, it's really gnarly looking. And a testament to how great Tom Savini is as a makeup artist and effects artist. But the bikers break through the barricade. They they go they they go nuts in the mall, uh, wreaking all sorts of havoc. They of course let the zombies in. And there's a uh, that gives away gives way to a lot of comedic scenes too, where you know they're throwing pies in the face and. <laughs> <laughs> they're, you know, they're beating they, up mannequins while there's zombies right behind them. I know, right? And there's like they even like mug this one lady. She like looks like this like you know this like Haitian with all the jewelry, and they're ripping her rings off and tearing off her pearl necklaces. Oh yeah, and, and that's and that's kind of what uh, what moves things into the end game because they eventually do end up like fight. They do end up fighting back. They uh, they open fire on, on the bikers. The situation becomes increasingly chaotic, uh, but. Uh, Oh, guys! Is it Flyboy who dies in this scene? Yeah, Flyboy. Yeah, and it's yeah. um, he does some of the best zombie acting in this movie when he turns, like his stature and like the way he holds the gun, like off his like crumbled hand. It's um, it's a great bit of business there. And the other thing that I like is, you know, they do they do say like early on, well, why are there so many zombies in the mall? Like, I guess it's instinct. I guess they kind of remember being here. So this is where they, they flock to. And of course, when he becomes a zombie, what does he remember? That they put up a fake wall. Right. And he <laughs> ends up leading the horde through it. And, and that's when, you know, Washington and uh, and Francine are like, well, I, I guess we got to leave. Yeah. And um, when they do plug zombie Stephen, it's a great great it's a great blood effect it's a great squib just the back of his head just going Bleh. you know it's like they used a gallon of blood or something it looks so cool welcome to casual magic the show where we explore the fun side of magic the other i'm your host shivan putt and each week we delve into everything from casual format to explorations of creatures and card types to interviews with designers of the game at casual magic we believe that it just isn't magic without the gathering come along and play Hey folks, it's Asif Khan, CEO and Editor-in-Chief over at ShackNews.com. 
give a listen to our 9 to 5 Elon podcast about Tesla and electric vehicles and all sorts of cool stuff over there on the Greenlit Podcast Network. You know, they get, they get in the helicopter, they, they take off. We don't really get a sense of where they're going to go exactly. I think there's just, there's a, I think there's like an implication they might head for, for the coast. Uh, but like, we, we don't get any sense of what happens after because once they take off, they're out of the movie. And then I think in a very smart choice, <laughs> um, the credits are just scenes of the zombies wandering around the mall they have reclaimed, yeah. uh, set to the worst music, uh, which later <laughs> would become the uh, robot chicken closing theme. Oh. That's right. And the ending, I wouldn't say it's a happy ending necessarily. You just don't quite know where they're going. Well, but they've it, survived. It, it, they survive, but it's not as fatalistic as the original ending was planned on with the suicide yeah, they, uh, getting the head cut off right in the helicopter yeah which i think would be so weird um <laughs> and it would feel a bit like a repeat of um i don't know kind of like in the night of the living dead where the guy just gets thrown in the wood chipper thing like it gets thrown in the pile of bodies like it's just this kind of if you always end on that kind of fatalistic note, like the zombies win, you can, it, it's kind of more open-ended. It makes you wonder, Oh, what could have happened next? It keeps people talking. Uh, yeah, I think, yeah. I think it's a good ending. Um, and yet all this stuff in the, it, it's really surprising looking at the, the poster for the film. Like it's just that big half a zombie head. Yeah. The that's the... on it. It's the guy from um, when they land to get fuel, the one that um, mm-hmm. uh, Steven tries to shoot. And I guess that guy was just wandering around the time. And they're just <laughs> like, hey, do you want to be a zombie? And they gave him all the makeup. And um, it turns out he had already had a shaved head. And he was like in some like, a rock band or something like that. And that was the guy. That was the zombie they used for the, for the poster art, which I think is great. You know, very serendipitous. That is just a random dude they found. <laughs> And you have that great line that's a line of dialogue in the movie, when there's no room, no more room in hell, the dead will walk the earth. And it's like better than any other explanation. Like it's just so like enigmatic, you know? Right. Yeah. I mean, you could, you could presume the radiation from space could be the same cause, but it it is. Yeah. And that, that's, you know, and that's something that I, I'm really sort of fond of so many zombie movies it's like an infection; it spreads. But I like that. I, I I am rather fond of the premise here that no, the dead just come back. Like you doesn't right. matter if you're bit. The moment you die, there's a little window, and then you're you're a zombie. Yeah. No. I, yeah. I give. Go on. Oh, so, uh, my like my theory was that like um, with Roger, like he gets bit in like the leg, and I think that's why it takes him like three or four days to turn. Whereas uh, Flyboy gets it, like right in the neck, you know, and I think that like right direct to the bloodstream thing is what turns him so quick, and it also suits the story. So <laughs> there's that. I mean, yeah, Dawn of the Dead is a definite sequel. Yes, for me, there's oh, yeah. uh, a real classic of the genre. Uh, I mean, th- this whole Living Dead series, as we'll discuss in the next you know month or so, it's so interesting. Like they do take place kind of in the same universe, but there's not really canon is not a big part of it, or the chronology is a big part. Yeah. It doesn't really matter. They just happen to have zombies it's presumed you know these are all from the same thing all from the same source but it doesn't really matter does it not really i mean other than the the theme of zombies and and different settings there's very little connective tissue with these sequels and that's kind of nice for a change where there's so much lore and so much 
I mean, if you were doing trying to do a zombie trilogy these days, you would have like the first movie be all this exposition, and then the movie probably wouldn't do well, and you wouldn't ever get a second one. Like right. And um, I also love the way George Romero casts these movies because you know what he said was that basically, like, if I cast stars and, and recognized actors, you'd expect things to happen, or you kind of know what's going to happen. Whereas if you just mm. kind of cast, you know, talent over profile you have much more agency in telling your own story. And it works great because these guys are all solid actors. And it's kind of like an inverse of all other horror movies. Like, you always kind of have these, like, lesser horror flicks that born these great careers, like, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio in Creators 3 or Jennifer Aniston in Leprechaun, whereas you have these terrific horror movies with these kind of just low-profile actors, and they don't become, you know, huge stars. But it's um, and it's probably one of the reasons why these movies are so um, indelible to the genre is that we don't have these other um, referential associations with them. This is a definite sequel, yes, for me. Uh, whether it would be, whether it's exploring these themes again or dealing with these characters again, I absolutely want to see more. Uh, and audiences did too. I'm just, uh, did some quick math. It looks like this movie earned back 44 times its budget. Damn. Yeah, it's under a million dollars, I think, the, the budget for this film. Yeah, 1.5 million is the estimated budget. Wow. Yeah. Um, it's uh, it's terrific. A resounding sequel, yes, from from uh, this corner, uh, for sure. It's such a terrific film and pretty pioneering in its um, in its effects. And um, just the gore effects are just legendary. And um, Tom Savini's just a brilliant maniac you want on your team if you're going to make a zombie film. <laughs> And of course, he would then later later direct in 1990 the remake of Night of the Living Dead. Yeah, that's right. Okay, so uh, on to pitch a sequel. I think what what I would do with this is trying to think of, you know, the settings are mainly what make all these Living Dead films different from each other and the characters, but setting is what comes up most to me. I would maybe do a, a Living Dead movie set at a kind of like rundown carnival mm. kind of go for that setting and call it carnival of the living dead i guess and um maybe you you have it start out where the beginning of the film is a, a family or something they're they're going with friends to this carnival thing and it's just sort of normal and then something maybe zombies come upon this carnival and just chaos kind of ensues with a lot of people and a lot of zombies at a carnival, you'd have bits going with the kind of like a, you'd have a tunnel of love gag or something where there'd be <laughs> zombies feasting on people. And they're not sure on the right, if it's part of the scary thing in the tunnel of love, or if it's a real zombie killing someone, uh, you would the tunnel of loves have scary things. Or is that more of a haunted house thing? I guess it's more of a haunted house, but this would be, I think you're onto something with this. <laughs> yeah. But you could, you, I think as a set piece, that could be sort of funny and you could, um, Maybe maybe some climactic moment at a where they're on a uh, Ferris wheel, where maybe the people, the humans are at the top, and then there's zombies down below, and zombies trying to crawl from both sides, and the Ferris wheel is slowly going around back to the ground where all the zombies are. I think you know there's a lot of good opportunities for for things there, and it would just be called yeah, Carnival of the Living Dead. Excellent, Thrasher. So I want to do I'll, this. I would do another movie that is poss possibly parallel with all the other movies. Uh, I'm going to do uh, I'm going to do uh, Mountain of the Living Dead. And so in this one, 
when things start when things start to go south, uh, a guy gets together his whole extended family and says, "Hey, we got a cabin in Mon- we got a cabin and a mountain in Montana. Let's just go there. These things can't walk uphill too easy." Uh, and so he moves his whole extended his whole extended family. Uh, they do a little caravan carpool across the country to get to this cabin in Montana. Uh, and so we'll get also some travelogues. We'll see them drive through different cities and counties as the situation deteriorates, deal with some some problems there. Uh, but they move into the cabin, and it turns out he's kind of right. Zombies are more interested. Uh, it's easier for zombies to go downhill. So this cabin is pretty much zombie-free. Uh, and so the only threat to these people are each other, and other people who have fled the cities and have gone into the mountains, and nobody's really sure of any of what anyone's intentions are. Uh, people start to get uh, increasingly paranoid. Eventually, there's a murder, which leads to the first mountain zombie, uh, and uh, and that's kind of going to be that's kind of going to be the the big thing is the paranoia and the first mountain zombie is what's going to cause everything to spiral out of control. And in the in the end, some younger people in the family realize. Well, we we can't we can't stay here. This place is now no longer safe. We have to move on. But of course, the patriarch of the family doesn't want him to leave, and has has gotten to the point where he's basically keeping his family hostage. So eventually, uh, as zombies start to show up, it's going to be about the younger people rebelling against the older people to get out of the cabin with some weapons to steal a car and try to find another place that they can call their own. Excellent. And Alex. Oh, um, in the uh, George Romero tradition of exploiting um, Pittsburgh locations, um, what would happen is that after um, after Stephen and well, not Stephen, but after they escape and everything, Peter and Francine have kind of you know zipped around the continent with the helicopter trying to survive. She has her baby, and what happens is that they decide to go back to Pittsburgh, and they end up realizing that the uh, Pittsburgh Steel Tower has this kind of civilization civilization that's like, going on in there. So they decide to land and they meet this like tribe of dudes who's been like who's made that their makeshift like home. And a lot of humans have sought refuge there and um, what they're doing is that they're kind of trying to like recreate this like they have regressed into this like tri- like tribal um, mentality of uh, survival and making these like, you know, steel devices that will protect them from the marauding army of zombies. And um, it's kind of like a caste system where, you know, you have like a Snowpiercer-esque allegory, like the lower class people are on the bottom levels of the tower and it, you know, the higher up you get, the better it gets. And um, they're trying to court, you know, um, uh, Peter and Francine to, you know, join their ranks because they're very adept at surviving. Um, But as it turns out, they uh, try to, you know, hijack her baby and stuff because they want to rape you know, procreate this, uh, you know, new society of theirs. And um, what happens is that obviously, you know, who's the real monster, man or zombie? And um, Francine and and Peter have to fight their way out of this, you know, ghoulish uh, tribal society in the Pittsburgh Steel Tower. And it would be called uh, Tower of the Living Dead. Very good. Okay, on to uh, what you're watching. I watched uh, something recently that I've been meaning to see. Um, I haven't seen anything else from this director, but I did see a documentary about him. I'm talking about Richard Stanley's Color Out of Space, 
with uh, Nicolas Cage. And it is, you know, Lovecraft is so difficult to adapt. And this made it set in a modern time, which I think works and and takes some elements of the story, but also does its own theme to some extent. And I I would say I think it it works. It is a really uh, slow burn. It, it you get to know the characters a bit before things start going crazy and things are affected by the titular color out of space. But, um, and you do get to see some, some crazy Nick Cage stuff in here as it goes on. And, uh, I, I would say I liked it overall. I liked it. I think it felt kind of old fashioned. It's, um, with the special effects, I'm reminded of, uh, some of the body horror stuff reminds me of the thing a bit of that uh, John Carpenter film. But it's uh, pretty interesting. I think you would, and and Tommy Chan is inspired casting as Ezra, who's kind of the nice the, the old kook that kind of has all his theories about what's going on. He's, he's not a major character, but it's uh, it's exactly what you think it is as far as what his role is like. He's got a cat named G Spot. <laughs> he does have a yeah. He has a pussy named G Spot, as as the as the joke goes, and uh, yeah. Um, have uh, either of you seen this? Not yet, uh, regrettably. It's it's been on my list. I, I I love Richard Stanley. The Color Out of Space is a delightful old pulp horror story. I I I want to see what happens when those two things combine. Yeah, um, I was I saw it a little while uh, right shortly after it came out. I was really excited for it because, like I said, I'm a big Richard Stanley fan. I love Hardware and um, and uh, Dust Devil. Um, there's so much going on in this movie that I think is brilliant, but how did you feel about the dialogue? Because the dialogue for me just, like, it felt like it was written by someone who, like, like an English second language speaker almost. Like, the dialogue was so weird to me. It really put me out, which really sucked because there's so much visual going on in this movie. It's it's great, but it just, the dialogue just really, like, socked me in the face. It was, uh, Um, it just... Some of the dialogue was okay. I didn't mind some of the the flirty stuff between oh the the daughter and the guy that's the water inspector. I think that stuff worked okay, but a lot of yeah, some of it is clunky and uh I mean something they don't really a lot of times sometimes like the audio is really muddled too. Like you have yeah. a whole a whole bit where, uh, because of what's going on with the the meteorite and so forth, uh, the cell phone receptions are, are busted up, and, and so you you get these phone calls, and um, but on either end, no one can really hear what's happening, and then they make a big deal of it later on, like oh wow, you were saying all these mean things to me, and but you can't even make out what's on the phone call to begin with, yeah, which is sort of which is a bit odd. And it's a cool idea, like you know, the, that the color is is getting into your technology and stuff mm-hmm. like that. There's there's so much going on, and it's so gonzo, and like so much of me likes it. But whenever I think about all the the weird humor with like the alpacas and like, it's just uh, yeah, it just it that it put me off. But there's a lot that I still really appreciate, and there's a lot of brilliant stuff going on in the filmmaking. But it's just that weirdo dialogue just really put me off. I wonder if any of it was any of the Nicolas Cage stuff was improvised because he goes on this weird like tangent about like I had fennel seed or I had like fennel seed to the alpaca's feed and improves the flavor of the milk and triples the yield and he goes into all these details 
<laughs> and then like it's so bizarre. The llamas do sort of pay off, kind of, but not not to the extent that they spend in the beginning talking all about Opaka as being like the the animal of the future and it's yeah. Yeah, I was like wondering if this is like some like ecological environmental message that like Richard Stanley's trying to impart. Um I just couldn't really wrap my hands around it. And yeah, like Quiriana Culture, I believe her name is. She was a Pocahontas from the New World. I was like the mayor, I believe. Oh, okay. Yeah, and that also just felt really weird. Like I, I did read I some interview that maybe like twenty or thirty minutes was taken out of the original cut of this. Which which it feels makes like sense. that, yeah. That there's some things they start up they don't pay off. But no, I think you would like it, Thrasher and uh uh, Richard Stanley would like to do two more Lovecraft adaptations, uh, and he wants his next one to be the Dunwich Horror. So hopefully, uh, hopefully that happens because he's I'd a be very cool. I hope filmmaker. It, I hope it is as sort of weirdly psycho, at least as weirdly psychosexual as the one with Dean Stockwell. Hmm. Sure. I still haven't seen that. It's worth checking out. It. It is. It's it it is a it is a one of a kind movie. Uh, it it is so it is so like richly textured with seventies occultism in addition to everything else. Uh, although, although I think it's probably its only legacy outside of like horror movie fans is that there is an there is a Grim Adventures of Billy and Mandy TV movie where the opening credit sequence is modeled after the opening credit sequence of that version of the Dunwich Horror. <laughs> that's a that's a deep cut uh, thrasher what have you been watching all right so i watched a a cult movie that the last like it, it has been all but unavailable uh until fairly recently in fact the last the first and last time i saw any part of it would have been in the early 90s it probably aired on uh, tnt's 100 weird which was a occasional late night programming block where they would show cult films uh it's the animated science fiction movie Star Chaser The Legend of Orin released in 1985 and originally released in 3D. Do you all know this movie in any way shape No. Or no. I will go so far as to call this the greatest animated Star Wars ripoff ever made. Huh. And like it's it's a Star Wars ripoff in all the right ways, but uh and and when you're watching it in 2D, there are so many weird things in the movie that make so much more sense when it's 3D, but it gives this movie a unique look. But the, the short version, it's about this young Luke Skywalker type who is a slave in a mine, uh, and all of his people are being worked to death, and there's this like and there's like this weird like robotic statue of Moloch that they feed the minerals they mine into. Uh, and you know, he becomes dissatisfied with all this and uh, he ends up killing a guard and decides to flee for his life. And there's like, there's like three rules that all the miners have to follow. One of the rules is you are forbidden to dig up. So he steals a mining laser and digs up and digs his way to the surface of the planet, discovers that he's part of a broader universe, uh, can summon a psychic sword that he finds that some cyborgs have. Uh, and basically goes on this quest across the galaxy to liberate his people. He teams up, he teams up with a uh, tough talking smuggler. <laughs> uh, 
there's a Darth Vader type. There's a Princess Leia type. There's all sorts of weird aliens. Uh, it's a very horny movie, too. There's, like, a sexual undertone in so many scenes. There's a robot... There's a robot administrator that the smuggler steals and reprograms to work on his ship, which... Oh, also, that's another neat thing. Most of the spaceships are are CGI. It's a rudimentary early CGI, but since the ships are big mm. and bulky and angular, it works really well. And there's and what's many the thrills, name of this one again? Uh, Star Chaser, The Legend of Orin. Orin is the main character. Star Chaser is the smuggler's uh, starship. Okay, because this sounds great. And is I'm, there more than I, one I, of these? or There's just one. I think mm. there was a hope it would start a franchise, right. but the movie bombed, had a limited release. I'm not sure it was ever available on home video until the DVD slash Blu-ray era. I believe it's a Blu-ray now, but it's cropping. It's starting to crop up on several streaming services. <laughs> yeah, this looks great. I've I've been having fun with um like the Roger Corman uh, Star Wars knockoffs like uh, uh, Star Crash and yeah Galaxy of Terror. So. Oh, and uh, it was a battle beyond the stars. <laughs> yes, yeah. So I could totally use another uh, weirdo Star Wars knockoff. And, it, and it's written by Jeffrey Scott. After watching the movie, like I, w- I tried to dig up material on like how the movie was made, um, and it was essentially sold as this could be the next Star Wars. But the one of the re- like the this movie goes a mile a minute, and that was in part because you know like well we got to make this worth seeing. So the screenwriter just decided to put in every crazy idea he could come up with. That sounds amazing. Oh yeah, and just like I. God, the cyborgs at the beginning are so disturbing. And, like, this is also, like, I think it was, I think this was, I think this was released PG. This would be PG-13 bordering on R if it was released today. Mm. Excellent. How about that? Very cool. So next time on Sequel Cast 2, we'll be talking about Day of the Dead. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You can follow me on Twitter at M-A-T-W-B-T. Follow me on Twitter at Internet Mayor. You can follow me on Twitter at Crab Nebula nineteen fourteen. And if you like the show, please go to Apple Podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts and leave a review. Those kind of things help with downloads, and uh, we'd greatly appreciate it. Um, so uh, before we sign off, we have to do the sequel scene. I just remembered. Yeah, so why don't this... you set the stage for it, Thrasher? So, so this is shortly after they've decided. This is shortly after they've moved into the mall and they cleared out the one zombie that's on the second floor, uh, and it's our principal characters. It's uh, it's Francine, Stephen, and Peter, just kind of generally like ruminating. Now that they've had a moment to stop and catch their breath, it's just them ruminating on the mall and uh, their place in this new new terrifying world. All right, who wants to be who? Hmm. I I can do Francine. I will do Steven. Let's go. All right. They're still here. They're after us. They know we're still in here. They're after the place. They don't know why. They just remember. Remember that they want to be in here. What the hell are they? They're us. That's all. When there's no more room in hell. What? Something my granddad used to tell us. You know Makumba, Voodoo? My granddad was a priest in Trinidad. He used to tell us, when there's no more room in hell, the dead will walk the earth. I didn't know we were doing celebrity impressions. (laughs) 
I would have come up with something for Francie. It was a last minute decision. <laughs> cool, man. <laughs> You're still here. I I'm remi- I'm reminded of I saw a, a photo floating around of uh, a restaurant or a bar where it says that if you order in the voice of Sean Connery, you get 10% off your bill. Oh, that I'm going awesome. there. Yeah, that sounds yep. pretty good. Um, yeah, I mean, all right. we can still do a second take. <laughs> no, no, no. That's, that's quite fine. We, we can all do Sean Connery. Yeah. Exactly. Um, okay, so for uh, sequel cast two, this is Matt. It's Thrasher. <laughs> this is Alex. <laughs> Saying some kind of instinct. A memory of what they used to do. This was an important place in their lives. <laughs> <laughs>